We'll be looking this morning at the first section of Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, as we start chapter 17, we see that Jesus is now turning once again to teaching on the life of a disciple. Jesus had previously been warning us about the teachings of the Pharisees, and he had been warning us about the dangers of money, putting that in the context of saying to us that you can only serve one of two masters, either God or money. Now today, he is going to flesh out for us more what it means to serve God, what it means to live the Christian life. He's going to describe for us what our duty is for God. The first thing we will see is a way in which we need to understand our duty to the king. And then, once we have seen our duty, he takes us to understand our relationship with the king. For we cannot truly understand our duty and how it will be accomplished apart from our relationship with King Jesus. Well, let's begin then by looking at verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3 as we see the first duty that Jesus describes for us that we have. He says to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. 
the very first duty that Jesus gives to us is he tells us that we are to watch ourselves. As a matter of fact, he says this at the beginning of verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Now, he does this because he wants to remind us that the Christian life is a life lived in community. If we're honest, it's very easy to have an individualistic mindset with respect to our faith. We think about the things we're supposed to do, the things I'm supposed to believe, the way that I'm supposed to act, and everything becomes a series of events and effects that affect me. But the reality is, is that we are called to the Lord Jesus, not as individuals or not to individualism, but rather as a part of a family, as a corporate body. Now, this does not deny our individual nature and individual salvation any more than being a part of a family means everyone in the family has the exact same personality. I think you know that's not true. But there is a greater sense of the body in a family. And so Jesus wants to impress that upon us in our life as his disciple. How we live affects others around us. We are not somewhere off in a vacuum. And the important thing about this is, the life of a disciple is about more than just avoiding impurity. If we think in individual terms, we think about ways in which we are to remain unstained from the world and from sin. Now, that certainly is a biblical directive. But it's not the sum of the biblical directives. It's not just about what happens to me. We are called to be active agents, to be servants of Jesus' kingdom in this world. And so Jesus focuses our attention on this by turning to his disciples. We see this in verse 1. He turns to the disciples and speaks to them. And I think here who he's speaking to are just the twelve Because you'll see later on, Luke will refer to the apostles. So instead of speaking to the whole crowd with Pharisees and everyone around, he's zeroing in on those who are following him, who are eating with him, sleeping with him, living with him, hearing his teaching day after day, month after month. And what Jesus tells them is something that I think is very obvious to us. And that is that life brings challenges to following Jesus. Isn't that true? There are challenges that come in our way that stop us from following Jesus how we would want to or how we think we ought. And so Jesus says, temptations to sin are sure to come. Now, to give you the right picture in your mind of what Jesus is saying, the word here for temptation is not the same as we see in other places in the Bible. In Luke 4, for example, where Jesus is tempted by Satan. This temptations to sin is actually all one word. There's an English word that we get that goes along with it. It's called scandal. And it's a hindrance, an obstacle to our following Jesus. It's something that takes us astray. So what perhaps you could have in your mind's eye are as 
you're driving around through some of the neighborhoods. You see these, what seem to be two feet tall speed bumps in the road. And you wonder if even at five miles an hour, it's not going to rip out the undercarriage of your car. You don't dare go quickly over them. You wish you could go around them. You know they're a hindrance to where you're trying to go. That's what Jesus is talking about. It stops us from getting where we want to go. And these hindrances are not just annoyances. They're dangerous. Because they're a hindrance that leads to sin. It causes us to do things we ought not. To leave undone things we ought to. To not obey God as He's revealed His will. In some instances, it could even lead to a denial of the faith and apostasy. Now, Jesus tells us that these things are unavoidable. And if you're not living in a cave somewhere, you understand what this is. You know, it used to be that years ago, a certain time of the evening was designated as family time. And so there were certain things that weren't on television. There were certain things you couldn't show. Not even on cable TV. Today that's gone. Anything goes during the supper hour. It used to be that not even the worst magazines, but even just some not very good magazines would be under the counter or would at least have a black or a brown barrier in front of them at the grocery store. Now they're on display for everyone to see. Any place you go and look, you will see hindrances, temptations to sin. That is our world. So Jesus is telling us this. Now why is this important? It's because our temptation as believers is to use that as an excuse for our actions. Well, we're not as bad as this. Well, we don't at least do that. Well, it's not that we could lead someone astray. Look at everything that's out in the world. And what Jesus does is he takes that excuse away from us. If we are to follow Jesus, temptations may be inevitable. It may be unavoidable. But they ought not to come from us. They ought not to come from you. You ought not to be the cause of leading someone else astray. Now, how can we lead others astray? Perhaps the first thing that comes to your mind are the obvious things. We're in a Reformed church, so if we were asking people to buzz in and give an answer, everyone would say false teaching. And they would be right. False teaching does lead others astray. Teaching that denies that Jesus is God. Teaching that denies that we are sinners. Teaching that denies that the Bible is true. That is indeed a hindrance. Another obvious, if that answer has already been taken from you, you can buzz in and say scandalous living. Perhaps you've had the experience of trying to talk to a friend or a coworker or a neighbor about the gospel, about the Bible, and they look at you and they say, now, are you like these televangelists? Are you just talking to me because you want to get my money? You know, these guys say they're preachers on the TV, and I hear they all have affairs, and they all... Bilk old ladies out of money and they all avoid taxes with the IRS? These are two obvious ways that people are led astray from the gospel. There are other less obvious ways that we can't avoid zeroing in on us. It's not just scandalous behavior that is a hindrance. It's also actions that set a bad example for others. 
Everything that we do is seen by others. And when we set bad examples, others are drawn away from the gospel. There is another thing that hits close to home. Complaining. Complaining can lead to discontentment in others. Now, did you ever think, as you were complaining, that you were out there with a cement bucket and a trowel, building a three-foot speed bump for other people around you? It's close to home, doesn't it? I know it does for me. Because it's so easy to complain and think it has no effect on other people. Also enticing others to our own sin. Now, this doesn't have to be a gross sin. It could be something like, come here and let me tell you what I heard about Mr. and Mrs. Jones. And you bring others into gossip. You see, these are the things that we can do that bring about barriers, difficulties for the gospel. How important is it for us to avoid this? Well, Jesus gives us some stark words. They're so stark, they're difficult to understand. Jesus says it would be better to have a millstone hung around our neck and cast into the sea rather than put these barriers up and to cause a little one to sin or to stumble. Now, oftentimes when we hear this phrase in the Bible, the little ones, we think this is about children. And that makes it easier for us. Because when we're going to do things that we don't really feel comfortable doing, we take a precaution. We send the children up to their room. And then once we've done that, we're not going to cause the little ones to stumble, and we're in the clear, we're going to protect the children. But that's not what Jesus means here. He doesn't mean just children. Children are included in this. But I think what he means is anyone who is a new disciple, anyone who is being witnessed to, With the gospel, anyone who would be turning aside from following Jesus because of stumbling blocks that are put in front of them. And Jesus' warning here is so sharp, it's hard to understand. He says, it would be better. And the word there is, it would be to your advantage to have a millstone, which is a large stone that is used on the upper portion of a mill to grind out grain. It is so large that one man cannot carry it alone. It would be better to have that tied around your neck and to be thrown into the sea than to cause one to stumble. Now think about that. I don't know about you, but there are very few deaths that are worse to imagine than a horrible drowning. To be cast into the sea, knowing you have no hope of getting to the surface because you are being dragged swiftly down, knowing you cannot breathe, trying to breathe anyway, and then water rushing into your lungs, your lungs filling and almost exploding with water, and knowing that you are going to die because it doesn't happen instantly. And Jesus says, you should sign up for that before you cause one to stumble. He's taking this very seriously, isn't he? You see, Jesus wants us to understand this, and that's why he says in verse 3 that we are to pay attention. We are to be on our guard, and the tense here is a present tense. It doesn't mean be on your guard in church. It doesn't mean be on your guard at your best hour. It means watch yourselves 
24 hours a day. Always be on guard. This is a great responsibility, especially for those who are leaders and teachers. It's why James says we should ought not to have many be teachers because they bear the greater responsibility. So elders, pastors, Sunday school teachers, this applies to you. But it really also applies to all Christians, doesn't it? Because we all interact with other people. Perhaps the most frightening application of this is to parents. We all know how difficult it is on a good day to raise children. And what Jesus is saying here is we need to watch ourselves not to put hindrances in front of our children from following Jesus. It is not a matter of statistics. I know that we could go and look at the research and dredge up what percentage of children remain in the church before and after high school or college. I don't care about the statistics. We each have our own individual responsibility. Jesus' words are harsh. We need to do everything we can to encourage our children in following Jesus. There's a second thing that Jesus tells us we have as a duty to our king, and that is to forgive. He begins in the second half of verse 3. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now, this is another reminder of the community, the nature of the family of faith. Because the text says, if your brother sins, it's assuming there's a relationship. The believers are related one to another like a family. Now, the condition here is not immediate. It is not that Jesus is pointing at someone and saying, deal with this person. He's saying, if your brother sins, and I'm not saying he currently is, but whenever he does, that's the, the sense of it, that you are to rebuke him. Now, Jesus is not looking for meddlers here. Please, do not leave church this morning and go butt into each other's lives in a harsh way and say the pastor made me do it. I am not asking you to meddle. Jesus here is talking about this in the context of a community, a community that desires righteousness, a community that desires accountability. And it's another reminder that we do not live in isolation. We do not get to set up our own standard and everyone else works around us. You know what this is like. I think nearly all of us have at one point in our lives had the dreaded, group project where you have to do something whether it's at school or at work where there are six or eight people together and you're supposed to work as a group and what grade do you get everyone in the group gets praised or punished equally and what inevitably happens somebody in the group decides that that means they get the free ride they don't have to do anything everyone else can do the work they may even decide, I don't care if I get a D. And that thought alone may cause you to have a panic attack. How do you deal with that? Well, you have to call them to account, don't you? Because the group is important. It's not just for you. It's about the whole group, actually including them. Don't you realize that these aren't good? 
Shouldn't you want to strive to do better? And this is what Jesus is saying here. And so how do we do this? We have to do this courageously and forthrightly. For many of us, the most difficult thing to do is to confront someone with their sin. It makes us break out in hives. We do everything we can to avoid that. Some of us don't even want to do that with our spouses. We start dropping hints, hoping that they get the hints. And then when they don't get the spoken hints, we start leaving written hints. But we don't want to have the talk. It requires courage, but it must be balanced by graciousness. If we're going to rebuke someone, it needs to be gentle and not judgmental. Even sometimes I think when we hear the word rebuke, we think that if we don't twist the knife a little bit, we're not doing it right. That's not what Jesus is saying. And it has to be done in love, with an eye toward others, not ourselves. It needs to be humble, not proud. And it needs to be bathed in prayer if we are to undertake this great task. All of this is very difficult. We don't want to do this. But Jesus calls us to it. And then we see Jesus show us where rebuke is taking us. It helps us to understand the purpose of a rebuke. And that is, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And the picture there is of your brother receiving the rebuke well and the end of it being found. That is, they turn. They turn from their sin. They admit their error. And they request pardon. Now, we are not here to force others to repent. Right? You all know what that's like in your family, where someone is forced to apologize. And there's no reality to it. And this is what we should want, real, heartfelt repentance. But there's a problem. I think maybe the only thing in all of the Bible that we are called to do that is harder than rebuking someone is forgiving them. And you see, the end of the rebuke is repentance that requires us to forgive. And and Jesus shows us what repentance is excuse me, what forgiveness is in this sense. It is free and without condition. You see what Jesus says, forgive him. He doesn't say, forgive him if he gives you restitution. Forgive him if he meets your terms. Forgive him if you think it's satisfactory. No, he says, forgive him. It's so open-ended, it makes us uncomfortable. How do I know if he's sincere, Jesus? How do I know if it'll stick, Jesus? How do I know if it's right to do, Jesus? And you know what Jesus says? That's not your problem. That's God's problem. Because he says, and by the way, if he sins against you seven times, you are to forgive him how many times? Seven times. Now, think about this. Seven times in a day. Now, don't get overly literal with the Bible. Don't forgive someone seven times. And on time number eight, say, you have used your quota. See me tomorrow. This is Jesus' way of saying, it's hard to sin against somebody seven different times and to have time to repent and ask for forgiveness. It would almost require constant repenting and forgiveness. Jesus is saying, you should always be ready to forgive around the clock. 
Jesus makes it more difficult. He makes it personal. He doesn't just say, if your brother sins here, if he's doing something he ought not. Do you see what he adds here that wasn't there before? In verse 4, he says, if he sins against you. That smarts, doesn't it? It's hard when people hurt us to forgive them. It's even harder when people hurt us again to forgive them. You know the old saying we like to go with? Three strikes and you're out. Jesus tells us that's not an option. Forgiving is painful. Forgiving is hard. But Jesus doesn't give us any options. He says you must forgive. But what about all the questions we have? What does it mean to do it so often? What about church discipline? What about judging whether their repentance is real or not? Jesus says we deal with those on another day. There are other texts that deal with that. But the main thing I want you to understand is your default position should be forgiveness. Don't go looking starting with the loophole. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's our tendency, isn't it? We want to start to find a way out from forgiving. Because we hurt. And we don't like that. Jesus knows we don't want to. But you see, this is how we become more like God. Who is God but one who calls sin, sin? And rebukes sin? And who is God but one who is ever eager to forgive the repentant sinner? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning as your Savior, you are counting your eternal destiny upon the continued, perpetual, free forgiveness of the Lord. Because you won't make it home without sinning again. And you'll need His forgiveness. This is how we understand what it means to be like God. But this is hard, isn't it? Pastor, how do I do that? How can I possibly forgive this person who's hurt me so badly? How can I possibly go up and confront this person with sin? How do I avoid all sorts of stumbling blocks? That's impossible. If you're asking those questions, you're in good company. Because you're just like the 12 apostles. Because they look at Jesus and they say, Lord, increase our faith. How do we do this? And what Jesus says to them is, you need to understand your duty in light of your relationship with me. And he tells them that it's only by faith that this duty can be carried out. You see, the disciples are understanding this and they ask, they say, Jesus, give us more faith. We need more faith to do this. As if we need more of faith to accomplish things. And again, this is right in with our nature and our experience. If we want to travel a further distance in the car, what do we need? More gas. If we are stocking up for inclement weather, what do we have to get from the store? More food. If we need more, we have to get more. And so the apostles are thinking, if we're going to do this really hard stuff, we need more faith. They're actually using the same kind of language that the epileptic boy's father uses in Mark 9. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But Jesus shifts the issue on them. He tells them a parable, so to speak. A story. And the story is, 
that if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. What Jesus is telling us is it's not about the amount of faith we have. He's actually saying it's not even about the quality of the faith that we have. He's saying it's about the reality of the faith that we have. Because if we have the smallest amount of faith possible, a tiny grain of a mustard seed, that's sufficient. God can do an awful lot with very little. That's what Jesus is saying. And so he gives us this example. Now, we have to be careful here. Our tendency is to look at this and to think somehow we would serve God if on our way home we try to uproot oak trees and maple trees and toss them into the lake or into the bay. And I don't know if you've tried to do that recently, but it hasn't succeeded for me. The problem is we're looking at this from the wrong perspective. Jesus doesn't tell you to carry around mustard seeds, does he? He says if you have faith, as small as a mustard seed, it's sufficient. So don't read the text as saying, go around and prove you believe God by trying to uproot trees. He's giving us this example as a picture. A mulberry tree was a very tall tree, 20 feet or more in this area. And the thing about a mulberry tree was this. You've heard, perhaps, that you could understand how big the roots of a tree are by looking at its branches and leaves. It's the same in the bottom as it is on the top. With a mulberry tree, that's even more. It's the tree that has the most extensive root system of trees. Virtually impossible to rip out of the ground. What Jesus is saying is, I know you think this is hard. I know you think you're going to fail and cause others to go astray. I know you think you, you would rather die than confront someone with their sin. I know you think you could never ratchet up that kind of forgiveness. But what he says is, with just the littlest bit of faith, you can rip out those roots of doubt. You can rip out those roots of excuses. You don't have to say to yourself, well, I'm not a forgiving kind of person. Jesus can rip those roots out. He's giving you a visual image to hold on to. This is not about spectacular miracles. It's about overcoming the hard things that face you every single day in life. It's not just faith that we need. We need to understand our position with respect to Jesus. We need to understand that no matter what we do, we are only doing our duty, that we don't merit special treatment simply by doing what Jesus has commanded us to do. Because honestly, there is another danger. The danger is, is that we actually do what we are asked, or even partly. And then we believe we merit something special. Maybe you've done this, or this has been done to you recently. Child comes to the parent and says, Dad, I think we need to have a special treat today. I cleaned my room. Yeah, you're supposed to do that. That's part of your chores. No, 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 you don't understand. I actually did it. So, so I should get something special for doing it. No, if you hadn't have done it, you'd be in trouble. It's what you're supposed to do. 
And you see, sometimes we can face the Christian life that way. Especially as we look around and compare ourselves to other people, right? When we see someone who never forgives anyone, if we forgive once or twice, we think we are the cat's meow. Right? When we see someone who always avoids confronting sin, we think if we do it once in a blue moon, that we've hung the moon. But Jesus won't have us looking to ourselves for our own merit. And so he tells a story, a common story. He says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, Here, sit down, eat, I'll serve you. And the obvious answer is, No way! And then he asks another question. Well, would you ask him to serve you, to put on his cooking clothes and to bring ready and to give you a meal? Of course I would. Well, let me ask you this. Would you say thank you very much for doing the job that he was paid and asked to do? No way. It's so obvious. Jesus is using that to teach us that we cannot make God our debtor. Even if we do everything that Jesus has commanded in this passage, we cannot make God owe us. That's a real danger for our soul. Because we look around and we compare ourselves to others and we think we are more deserving and that God owes us. And we have turned on its head the very principle that brings us salvation. Free grace and forgiveness in Christ. You see, Jesus lays this down in verse 10 when he says, when you have done all that you were commanded, not some of it, all of it, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. You see, there's nothing special about having done what God has commanded. We don't earn anything in his sight. All that God has commanded is for our good and all that God has commanded is for his glory. We are called to this It's a part of living as a disciple of Jesus. It's an ordinary part of life. It's household chores. The blessing we get is from God. So in conclusion then, are you living today for Jesus? Do you want to serve Him? Then don't seek your own glory. You need to obey Him. And in your obedience, He will show you His grace and He will change you. He will make you more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that You would remind us that we are to seek Your glory, that there is none like You. Lord, please remind us that we are to live as your disciples. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.